0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to what is the last lesson for AP Euro this year. One of those bittersweet moments. It is sweet that it has come to an end, but it's also bitter that we're distant at this point. I would have loved to have been in the classroom, have an opportunity to teach all the way through. Um, just give you guys the information and also be together. And um, yeah, but, it, but here we are, distant learning. And so uh, we'll save the, uh, the congratulations and the, uh, the goodbyes to the end. Let's take a look at the lesson for today. Today, we're looking at Mikhail Gorbachev and his major reforms that he brings to the Soviet Union in the 1980s and how those reforms will eventually lead to cracks in the Soviet state, maybe even, maybe not so much cracks, but those cracks, I think you can argue have been there for already about 15 years before Mikhail Gorbachev comes into power, but it's going to be his reforms. Not on purpose, however, his reforms that eventually are going to lead to a demise of the Soviet Union and eventually lead to the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union. Beyond Mikhail Gorbachev and his reforms, we're also going to be looking at the fall of communism in Eastern Europe. So once this is done, once 1991 rolls around the corner for us, we are done with the Cold War. We have survived the Cold War. And if there is a winner in this war, it's the United States and NATO. The Allies. And if there is a loser, history is still being written on this one. If there is a loser, then it might be the Soviet Union or Russia and the Russian states. Uh, There's plenty to say that Russia has not lost because Russia and the Soviet Union still exist. They exist in a different form, they exist under Vladimir Putin. And even though they might not have the terminology of the Soviet state or Soviet uh, or communist Russia, the USSR, you might have still some of these cronies, uh, these old friends of the Soviet state, including uh, Putin himself, that are still in power and um, still drive kind of a um, um, a wedge between countries, especially us and our allies, and then the, the wedge is kind of uh, driven between us and any of the, the former Soviet allies. It still exists plenty you know, around the world. But um, before we get into the uh, the reforms, let's take a look back. Uh, at a couple of things, what we've done with the Cold War so far. So in 1945, there is a break in the relationship. The relationship seems to be uh, coming to a point, uh, to a head once the Nazis have been defeated in 45. There is blame that is driven both ways between the Soviet Union and the United States, both during the war and then directly after the dropping of the atomic bombs that will initiate this cold relationship between us and the Soviet state it seems to be that the soviet union is driven upon spreading communism around the world and if that is to be true then it is our job as the united states to stop the spread of communism and our policy of containment the containment policy there are plenty of events that take place from 45 to the 1960s we got the space race the nuclear arms race we have questions of broken promises Uh, we're spying on the Soviet Union, they're spying on us, and it goes back and forth. Uh, We eventually have in Europe two major revolts that are crushed, one by the Hungarian people in 1956, in which the Soviet state comes in with tanks and viciously crushes and opens fire on the Soviet protesters, Hungarian protesters, excuse me. And then in 1968, the Soviet Union and its Warsaw Pact nations will do the same thing to Czechoslovakia. Although Czechoslovakia, you might argue, is more of a of a, a spring. I think it is called uh, you know the, the Prague Spring, but that it's not a revolt. It is an assumption of changing the view of socialism, providing socialism with a human face, liberalizing it more, uh, not to have this old world darkness upon communism. But maybe we can allow freedom of speech in a communist state. Maybe we can allow perhaps a little bit of free market systems and people can open up their own businesses and make some money on the side and not to fall in line with old world communism that always seems to be really ugly and sinister and depriving of freedoms. And even though Czechoslovakia is simply trying to alter their view of communism, the Soviets do not take that well at all and they will go in and crush the re, uh, the revolt. Um, and once again, just to democratize socialism, provide a little bit more democracy towards it. We talked a little bit about the society at the time, uh, but we're going to be going back into Cold War era. So by the time we get to the 1960s into the 1970s, um, the 70s is seen as a period of what in economics would be called stagnation. Stagnation meaning um, that nothing's moving. If you guys have ever been or ever seen a pool or even a body of water where the water doesn't really flow, it's just kind of dead water, it's stagnant. Now you start to realize that it becomes like a cesspool, Uh, mosquitoes start laying larva in it, it becomes uh, full of algae and green and smells. And what they're trying to say here for stagnation means that the economy is not running, it's not moving, it's not producing, it's kind of at a standstill, it's kind of dead. And periods of stagnation means that there's no growth. And so you're kind of like in a hover mode. And the Soviet Union found themselves in this kind of hovering mode of lack of growth in the 1970s going into the 1980s. Uh, In the 1970s, in attempts to change stagnation into more of a drive, uh, more uh, providing perhaps a stimulus for workers to continue to work as hard as possible to grow the economy, the Soviet Union used to do really interesting things. Uh, one in particular was hand out flags of the Soviet states that would have you know, symbolism of the Soviet Union. It might have the face of Lenin or Karl Marx, definitely not Stalin since we went through that de-Stalinization period, but they would have imagery, uh, imagery of the Soviet uh, heads on these beautiful flags, everything being embroidered, and it would end up having some of the major terminology of Karl Marx's The Communist Manifesto. Uh, and the, the flags were issued to factories as a way of helping the Soviet workers work harder. And uh, the way this would work would be is that there would be a quota that was set. A quota just means a number, uh, a production number. Um, so let's say we're working in an automobile factory and uh, the government comes in and says, for this automobile factory, we need to make 300 automobiles a month. Well, that 300 automobiles is your quota. That's the number that's set. You can either hit the quota or you can potentially exceed the quota. But that's the quota that that automobile factory has to do within a month, 300 cars. And perhaps the quota changes. But if you you hit the quota or you surpass the quota, Russian, Soviet states will give you flag. They give you beautiful flag, a beautiful red flag with embroidery on it, perfect to put up on wall and to admire for years to come. Now, notice that it is an object, right? They're not providing better wages. They're not saying if you increase your output, we're going to pay you more. If you increase your output, you're going to get benefits. It's simply a flag. Now, in the Western world, it's a little bit different for us, right? We hit a quota usually if we're working at a, uh, at a business. We hit a quota, and there might be incentives, right? Incentivization. Uh, you hit your quota, you'll make more money. You sell more, you'll make more money. If you hit this number, you might move up. Potentially, or there might be a bonus check involved. Well, the Soviets didn't have that, right? Under communism, you're working for the fact that you're you're working. It's not that you're doing it for selfish means. Not to say that every American capitalist is doing it for selfish means, but in a communist state, you're a doctor because not you get paid a lot of money. You're a doctor because you help people and you want to help people. Uh, Perhaps you're a trash collector, and not that you're going to get paid hundreds of thousands of uh, Soviet ruples, but that you're, you are you want to help clean society or that you're uh, a chef. It's not because you want to make money. It's because you want to feed people. You're doing it for the fact that you love it and you want to participate in society. Well, that's not how it works here in the Western world, right? We're usually a, a society, a capitalist society. It's worked off, it of, uh, works on money and we incentivize people through money oftentimes. Well, with the Soviet Union, Arriving at this period of stagnation, uh, and this is specifically after Brezhnev's death, um, the Soviet state is going to go through a couple of weak leaders until about 1984-1985. This marks the arrival of who is the, uh, the person who is the youngest Soviet premier to ever occupy that position, and that person is Mikhail Gorbachev. Now, you'll see Mikhail Gorbachev in one of the political cartoons coming up. One of the things that's interesting or important to note about Mikhail Gorbachev is not necessarily his age, although that is important, because in being the youngest premier of the Soviet Union or leader of the Soviet Union, he's not the old guys. He's not the old way of thinking. He's perhaps somebody who can change communism within the Soviet Union. That's not to say destroy communism. That's not what Mikhail Gorbachev wants. He's a communist and he believes in communist ideals, but maybe we can look at reforming, changing, altering the Soviet state, altering communism to where we can get past this period of stagnation and make life better for the Russian people. Another thing to note about Mikhail Gorbachev is that now we have a generation who is coming into power whose grandparents whose grandparents were affected by the Stalinist uh, Stalinist regime, I believe on Mikhail Gorbachev's family line, I believe both grandparents, might be both grandfathers and one grandmother, were arrested under the Stalinist regime. And I believe some of them were punished really brutally and harshly. How do you, as a communist, and somebody who's interested in politics and eventually wants to be the leader of the Soviet Union, how do you move forward when you know that the Soviet state, now yeah, it's totalitarian Stalin. I understand that. It's not uh, communism in general. It's not Leninism. It's not uh, eventually what they're going to get under Khrushchev. But how do you look at the communist state knowing that the communist state has murdered your people, has specifically beaten your family? It, It doesn't seem to be the state that you might be interested in taking over, right? When you have personal connections with family members that have been victims of the state. So I think that's really important to note for Gorbachev because he comes in with that family connection and potentially a new mindset. And the new mindset are two reforms in particular. And if you guys can please locate your Gorbachev reform sheet, it's going to be the readings. Uh, We're going to read through the uh, portions of the first part. So Bear with me as I read through this, and I believe you have a set of questions that you guys can actually pull out. It's under the same title, Gorbachev's Reforms, and it should say Gorbachev's Glasnost, and it'll have four questions, and then it'll be perestroika and four questions. So let's read through the first one. During an interview in 1989, Mikhail Gorbachev is quoted as saying, quote, I detest lies, end quote. It was this yearning for the truth that led him to introduce the policy of Glasnost, literally openness in English so translated glasnost means openness the liberal pr- uh, press exploited this leeway and continuously challenged the soviet boundaries of openness the whole period of recorded soviet history were changed by glasnost stalin brezhnev and cherenko previously great leaders were unmasked as the brutal oppressive murderers they really were only lenin remained sacrosanct by by sacrosanct meaning holy right untouchable remember this is one of the things that even um, Nikita Khrushchev wanted to make sure that he did, that he separated whatever crimes Lenin had committed to that of Stalin. Because if he had thrown Lenin Lenin under the bus, that meant, that meant that the first two leaders of this communist state were horrible leaders and murderers of their own people. But to distinguish Stalin as saying he is a murderer and Lenin is not, he saves Lenin's ideals, he saves the ideal of communism, as well as he kind of paints himself into being a non-Stalinist, that being um, Nikita Khrushchev. So only Lenin remained sacrosanct. Most telling of all, the school history exams for 1988 were canceled. So much conventional wisdom was overturned in the preceding months that the existing Soviet history books had become useless. This change was not totally accepted by radicals or hardliners. Hardliners meaning hardline communists, right? They don't want things to change. They want to stay the old way. The radicals wished to go further, and faster, and were exemplified in such illegal publications as Glasnost. Hardliners tried to retain their grip on the people's minds by frequent attacks on radicals in the conservative press. While Glasnost did allow discussion to take place, it is clear that controls were placed on the discussions. The arrest and harassment of, um, of the more radical paper staff and the removal of material from libraries still ensured that attacks found the right targets. The early years of Glasnost, and thus the early years of freedom of speech in the Soviet Union, were still tightly controlled. The critical re- re-examination of history Glasnost fostered was unprecedented in the Soviet Union and affected every chapter of the country's history. Khrushchev had previously criticized Stalin, however, he only let out partial truths to help his own career. The difference this time was that a liberal press had been allowed to grow and flourish within the Soviet Union, Ogonyok. A popular uh, current affairs magazine had a circulation of three million by 1990. It was in newspapers, television shows, and magazines like Ogonyek that the USSR's past was examined and the real truth revealed to the Soviet people. The liberal press did not take long to turn its attention to the slowness in reform of the Soviet system. Glasnost had broken free from its masters by 1989. So something happens between 1985 when Glasnost was introduced by Gorbachev in 1989. It's saying that it had broken free. It had a mind of its own. and began to be used to criticize its creator, Gorbachev. Anything was now fair game. The abolition of the Communist Party, a leading role, the failure of perestroika, and multi-party democracy were openly discussed in the Soviet media. These ideas were undreamt of even a couple years earlier. The turning point of Glasnost was the Chernobyl disaster in 1986. Soviet authorities initially tied, uh, tried, excuse me, to cover up the catastrophe and remained silent for 48 hours. The silence was followed by complete honesty and unparalleled information of the like that had never been seen in the Soviet Union before. After Chernobyl, environmental concerns became a favorite topic of the liberal press. The turning of Central Asia, Asia into a desert by diverting rivers to irrigation cotton plant to irrigate excuse me cotton plantations was just one example that shocked the nation the people could not believe the incompetence of their communist party planners as the truth came out piece by piece the soviet people became increasingly angry at their communist rulers Klasnos allowed for the first time the facts to be present or presented the soviet people soon realized why so much had been kept from them for so long the soviet union was in a mess for the f- and for the first time the people knew the truth and were demanding answers all right. So please take a moment to uh, use that information you're reading to answer the questions that you guys have specifically for Gorbachev's Glasnost. Remember, there's four questions. It's on the uh, Gorbachev's Reform questions, AP 2020. It'll say explains Gorbachev's explain Gorbachev's policy of Glasnost all the way through to number four. Explain the end result of the policy uh, of Glasnost and how it had how it changed uh, Russia. All right. Take a moment to answer those, and then we'll come back. Now, I think one of the things that we want to add on to Glasnost here—that's not in the reading. Yes, the term Glasnost does mean openness, but notice that it's openness about freedom of speech, as well as a lot of civil liberties like freedom of the press. Um, What happens, however, when you are providing the possibilities—and this is limited freedom of speech, right? But you're allowing freedom of speech amongst a population that has never had that freedom ever. Uh, The Russian people never have had freedom of speech before this time. They've never had freedom of the press. They've never had freedoms or rights that could potentially challenge the status quo of politics in their state. Oftentimes, that freedom of speech has been suppressed and propaganda becomes more of the key. Whatever the state tells you, that's what you need to know. It's not that you can go out and read what you want. You can say what you want. And and I want to make sure that I do note that openness was limited. You could not go uh, on national television and say, Gorbachev is horrible man, Gorbachev is peak, Gorbachev should be thrown in prison. Because those targets, specifically by naming individuals, you are targeting the leaders of the Soviet state, and that would not be allowed. You would still be thrown in jail potentially for that. Now, if you went on television, you said, Communism needs to change. Communism is big. Communism needs uh, reforms, and you're talking about it in generalities. That's what we're looking at as far as limited freedom of speech. Right, you can't throw people under the bus because at that point, then it becomes a specific individual challenge. This leader is horrible. When you say the system needs to be changed, then that's a lot. You know, it's a lot more open. To interpretation. What does he mean, system? Is it the communist system? You're not throwing any one or two or three individuals under the bus by name. Um, freedom. This Around this time, Bibles are reintroduced into the Soviet Union. Um, at this point, it has been an atheist state since its uh, conception, but Bibles are reintroduced because you have the ability of, of potentially purchasing certain books. Now, you can't, probably not going to find how to overthrow. You know, if there's a how-to book how to overthrow the communist state, probably not going to be able to find that like on a best selling list or best sellers list in the Soviet Union at the time. But at least they're allowing the Soviet state is allowing the Russian people more information. And with that more information becomes questioning, right? In 1988, you got to get rid of the history exams because your history books are tainted. They're not correct. They're not the correct history. Can you... Can you imagine you bust your butt? Now, I won't even say high school, right? Let's say hey, college, right? You're going to go into being a historian. You want to be a historian. You read and you read and you read and you write papers and you believe what you've learned is completely true. And then in 1988, somebody tells you, oops, yeah, well, sorry. Everything you've learned, maybe not everything, but maybe 50% of it is complete propaganda. The rest of it might be half truth. Holy crap, man. You got to go back to the drawing board. Are you kidding me? How many people would be pissed, pissed off completely at the state for doing something like that? But it it's going to happen. The moment you start allowing the people to have to be able to question the system, they're going to question more and more and more. And I what I would like for you guys to do is to locate the Glasnost and Perestroika cartoons, and we're going to jump there for to the Glasnost ones as we continue on. And the first Cartoon. There are three questions per each cartoon, so we'll continue with this for Glasnost. There, you're going to see a cartoon image of Mikhail Gorbachev, and he's holding his baby, right? His creation, the reform of Glasnost, and his baby doesn't seem to be much of a baby. It seems to be a grown adult. And if you do notice that the baby is holding a flag that says democracy, freedom, and the baby's also striking uh, Gorbachev in the face. He's got bandages. Looks like he's got a black eye and having a hard time holding on to this baby. And underneath, the author Cummings has indicated that Gorbachev is saying the following, if she's like this as a baby, what will she be like when she grows up or when she's a grown-up, right? So what seems to be the main issue concerning Glasnost here? I think once again, looking at the imagery that if you are going to provide a people who have been oppressed or suppressed for all these years, and you're going to give them a taste of that freedom of speech, they're going to start to want more. And if glasnost means openness, all right, limited freedom of speech, notice the flag. The flag says, no, we don't want limited freedom of speech. We want democracy. We want freedom. We want to kind of take the system, the communist system, and flip it upside down, flip it on its head, completely revolt or change the system. According to the cartoon, what are the potential consequences of glasnost in Russia? Well, I think... Once again, glasnost is a heavy topic. Right? That small baby, you're providing potential for the Soviet system, the Russian system to collapse. Uh, you're giving the Russian people the ability to speak out. And usually when you provide people with that freedom, uh, there are going to be demands for other freedoms. Maybe even full democracy. Maybe the removal of communism. Maybe even the arrival of capitalism. Maybe the Russian people say we're tired of the communist life. We want what Western people have, perhaps. And then what are the potential consequences on Gorbachev? Well, I mean, what's happening to Gorbachev in the image, right? He's being beaten. This is his baby. He created it. And now look, the baby's beaten up on him. I think we talked about this even with uh, Napoleon III. If you guys remember correctly, in France, Napoleon III eventually provided freedom of the vote or suffrage to all men in France And he did a good job of providing what the conservatives wanted to hear, what the middle class wanted to hear, what the workers wanted to hear, and what the poor people wanted to hear. He kind of was playing the political fence until he screwed up. Once the war between Prussia and France, the Franco-Prussian War, ends and France loses, everybody's going to point the finger at Napoleon III. And eventually, much like the freedom that got him elected, that same freedom of vote is going to get his butt voted out. So if you're going to provide freedom to a, to a people and you screw up on that freedom, you're not doing things the right way. Eventually that baby, that openness, that freedom of speech is going to criticize you, and in this case, Gorbachev might get a beating. Now, maybe the imagery might suggest that he might be beaten to the point of death. I don't know about that, but he might take a beating on this and potentially it might risk his as a consequence, his potential political career. He might be kicked out of office if he does not do this correctly. If he allows a little too much openness and a too much freedom for the Russian people, all right. Let's. Um, well, I also wanted to, to note another thing for um, for Glasnost, if uh, if I remember this correctly. Uh, to, to, to potential consequences, Glasnost in Russia. Nope. Let's let's move on. All right. So let's go back to the uh, the readings and let's check out the second one. And this is Perestroika. And the Soviet economy. So we got, once again, we're going to go through the reading. You guys have four questions to answer on Perestroika, and then we'll take a moment to analyze the cartoon. So Perestroika and the Soviet economy. On taking office in 1985, Mikhail Gorbachev faced one problem more daunting than all others combined. The Soviet economy had been in a period of stagnation for two decades, for 20 years, and was in desperate need of reform. Gorbachev chose to adjust the old system with a period of perestroika or restructuring in the hopes of making it more efficient. All right? So he's not trying to get rid of communism, he's just trying to alter it, make it more efficient, get us back on our on our feet in producing. Perestroika allowed state enterprises freely determined allowed state enterprises to freely determine output levels. I'm going to change that. Freely determine output levels based on demand of consumers and other enterprises. All right. Wasteful spending, an example, cars. I'm going to come back to that example in a moment. Enterprises became self-financing. That is, they had to cover expenses through revenues. No longer was the government to rescue unprofitable enterprises that could face bankruptcy. Perhaps the most radical of the economic reforms during the early part of the Gorbachev era was the law permitting private ownership of businesses in the services, manufacturing, and foreign trade sector. Under this provision, cooperative restaurants, shops, and manufacturers became part of the Soviet scene. The most significant of Gorbachev's reforms in the foreign economic sector allowed foreigners to invest in the Soviet Union in the form of joint ventures with, the Soviet, with Soviet ministries, state enterprises, and cooperatives. Despite these changes, gross national product, so GNP, in 1991, as a percentage of 1989, was uh, over 20%. Percent less than it was than was a national income. By 1991, the Soviet economy had stopped declining and had gone into complete collapse. So even before we finish reading, as far as its failure, all right, already they're suggesting that it is a failure. All right, this is not going to work. But let's let's look and see what are some examples of perestroika. So the first one, perestroika allowed state enterprises to freely determine output levels based on demands from consumers and other enterprises. So. In the 1970s, when the government was a command economy, the government commanded factories to produce a certain quota or commanded farms to say, we need X amount of lettuce and X amount of corn and X amount of this and that. Now the state is backing off and the state is telling those manufacturers, those automobile uh, companies, you have to set your quotas. You have to figure out, based on supply and demand, how many cars you need to produce. Because the Soviet state is starting to realize that. There's a multitude of things that are going on that's costing them too much money. Number one, they're in the middle of a Cold War with a very profitable capitalist state in the United States. And if they're going to continue to fight, and I mean this in theory, not actually fighting, but if they're going to continue to fight against the United States in the Cold War, they're going to need to be able to fund it. And so that means that any any enterprise that's not making money in the Soviet Union might have to be allowed to fail. Because the Soviet Union can't continue to prop up all these um, useless companies if they're going to be on the verge of bankruptcy, right? This is a command economy. The Soviet state is run by the Soviet state, right? All the factories are owned by the government. So the government's starting to back off and telling the factory leaders, you figure out how much or how many cars you're going to be producing. Now that becomes difficult because you know, based on supply and demand, if you don't know how supply and demand works, you don't know how many cars you're going to be needing to produce. Let's say in this scenario, producing cars. In in the Soviet Union, if you needed a car, you would have to fill out proper paperwork, take to a government office, provide paperwork to government office, and car would show up at house where you have to go pick it up, or they, you know, they'd provide you a car. It was provided by the state. If you were driving around, got into a car accident. Right, and you maybe your side view mirror got ripped off. You you sideswiped a car and it got ripped off. There's no, there's no automobile shop. You know, you might have a busted side view, uh, a side view mirror that maybe you'll tape back on, but there's no place where you can go and say, "I need to buy side view mirror. I need to buy extra tire. I need to," you know, there, there doesn't exist that. You need to, you need to complete or um, ask for a brand new car. And that becomes wasteful. Instead of going to a shop and just getting a side view mirror, you're going to say, my car does not work correctly. I need to follow paperwork, fill out paperwork to get a new car. And what the Soviet Union realizes in that case is that it becomes wasteful, that there should be regulations and holds on which industries that are failing should be allowed to just completely fail and which ones potentially might be supported increasingly by the state. So for those cars. So let's go back to that scenario of the cars. So let's say that 300 quota back in the 70s is still, you know, maybe we here we are in 1985, 1986. And the leader of the factory says, Look, government just told us we need to set quota based off of consumer demand. Last month we had 200 cars sold, or we had to make 200 cars. So this month we will need 200 cars. And they set their quota at exactly the same amount. And they don't analyze birth rates. They don't analyze demand. It could be that more accidents took place. It could be that there's uh, population shifts in certain areas. We need to sell more cars or bring more cars in one area. And what they end up doing is they drive down the quota by, let's say, 300 cars to 200 cars. And they say, well, we'll just make less and that'll save us money. Well, what happens if next month we need 400 cars and you only made 200 cars? Uh Uh-oh. That means the following month now you're at a disadvantage. You can't get that car that you wanted. Uh, the, now the factory has to say, oh, crud, we have to make 200 cars more. That might take you two or three months potentially to up your quota to get uh, the, the factory still producing. And, and so the in in the short term and eventually with the the collapse of the Soviet Union, perestroika uh, is not actually going to get rid of the wasteful spending. It's going to lead people who are not fit in determining those quotas based on supply and demand to determine supply and demand, and eventually it's going to collapse. Um, How did Perestroika, continuing with the reading, how did Perestroika fail so miserably? First of all, Gorbachev never planned to remake the Soviet system. He merely wanted to modernize it. Minor adjustments he implemented were his attempt to discipline the workforce with slogans calling for intensification and acceleration. Slogans were nothing new to the Soviet Union with huge posters carrying slogans present even in the countryside. This cannot be said for another of Gorbachev's reforms. He attempted to curb the production and sale of alcohol. While alcoholism was a major problem in the Soviet Union, he inherently forced production underground, inadvertently, excuse me, forced production underground, like a black market. Like America during the Prohibition, the mafia took control and has plagued Russia ever since. Other, other measures introduced under perestroika were less uh, were leasing land to farmers. Uh, All land was owned by the state, so the state had the right to lease it or uh, have it rented out, allowing loss-making factories to go bankrupt and limiting the number of private enterprises to open. So uh, another thing that you can do under this is you can open up your own business if you wanted. But notice that if if you look back at the paragraph above, it's only limiting the opening of businesses in certain factors like services, restaurants, manufacturing, low-level manufacturing, Shops, if you want to open up like a little mom and pop private owned business to make a little bit of money for yourself. Perhaps if we can incentivize the Russian people, meaning give them some money, make it a little more capitalistic, that they might be willing to work harder. And if they work harder, then the Soviet Union moves out of this period of stagnation and they're back into production and the the economy will uh, start moving again. So looking at that, as far as private uh, enterprises, Continuing on, it says McDonald's even opened a branch in Moscow. Although its prices were out of the reach of the average person, the most promising measure of all was a cut in state spending, especially in military expenditure. The reforms, while on the right track, were not comprehensive enough to overcome the sluggishness of the Soviet economy. When more radical changes were made, they were mostly too late to prevent the slide of the economy and often had adverse effects. This was the case uh, with the long overdue 1991 price rises, which caused panic buying of any and all goods. Perestroika was too little, too late to revive the Soviet economy. Uh, Looking at the example of cars, uh, cars wasn't the only example. Everything, any production um, ended up getting less. uh, Farming production and food in the 1980s. You can probably go online and see some CNN uh, clips of this, but you might have to stay in a long queue Waiting for your chance to select, you know, sausage or pick up bread, uh, and that's not that that's anything new. But you had limited amounts; they were not producing enough to hit those quotas to feed the Russian people, and so everything was scarce—not just cars, but even food. The failure of Perestroika was exacerbated by Gorbachev's continual boasting about the results the reforms would have. He pub- uh, by publicly predicting an increase in the people's living conditions that never happened. Gorbachev was unmasked as an inept planner and of being incapable of making much-needed decisions. uh, Failing to bring any significant change to the Soviet economy, Gorbachev lost the support of the people. By steering a course between the conservatives and the reformers, Gorbachev alienated almost everybody, leaving himself with few allies. The Soviet economy was in decline as Mikhail Gorbachev took office, and after much early hope, he could not prevent the economic collapse. His insistence on slow, gradual economic reform annulled or ended any positive effects the reforms might have had. This reluctance to introduce meaningful free market reforms to the Soviet economy lost Gorbachev the support of the people. Please think back to the imagery of Glasnost, right? the baby that Gorbachev was holding. If Gorbachev allows freedom of speech to the Russian people, And maybe the Russian people love it. Maybe they do love the fact that they finally get a chance to speak out against the state, and Gorbachev's okay with that. But once again, if Gorbachev screws up, then eventually the people will use that freedom of speech that they got in Glasnost to point the finger at him. Well, he does screw up. He screws up in the economy. He screws up with Perestroika. And then that allows that baby to start making demands, right? We don't like the old way. We want a new way. We want democracy. We want freedom. We don't want these uh, inept planners. We don't want the old system. I thought the, uh, the, the imagery of McDonald's opening up, right? Here you have this American, American company that epitomizes globalization, um, you know, the, the epitome of capital coming into Moscow in the middle of a Soviet state. And a lot of people, a lot of young kids wanted to work uh, there. I actually had a chance to visit that McDonald's that opened up in, in Moscow when we were there back in 2006. Uh, it's a small little hole in the wall, and it's not in a good area of Moscow. Um, but it was pretty cool to, to see uh, something that I remember as a kid saying, oh my gosh, McDonald's has opened up in a communist state. I actually have a chance to, to go there. Uh, one other thing, I, I think what I was trying to remember on the glass uh, one of, one of the things that actually opened up in Russia, and this is crazy to, you know, thinking about this today, but with freedom of speech, with glass with openness, televisions, uh, television um, broadcasting also opened up for the Soviet Union and the people of the Soviet Union. So the Soviets usually had their very typical Russian propaganda state television that they would watch and maybe different channels in that, right? You might have your movie channel or your news channel or whatever. For the first time, you could actually open a window to the Western world. And one of the first uh, television companies or TV programs that was shown in Russia was MTV. Now, take this. This is in the 1980s when MTV, which stands for Music Television, was still Music Television, right? It was it was Music Video Television. And so you would watch music videos. And for the Russian people, this was an an open door, an open window to the Western world. Uh, they could see in the 1980s living in excess in the Western world, you know, um people wearing nice, you know, Versace suits and driving Ferraris and these you know, overly produced music videos. And what it allowed the Russian people to do was to judge their life. Is my life here in Russia better or worse than the Western states? And if this is a Cold War, right now I'm looking at my life as a Russian and I say, oh my gosh, look, in America, they drive Ferrari. In America, they wear nice clothes. In America, they buy nice house. In Russia, what do we have? We have whatever, whatever the, the case might be. If you're a, Allowing yourself to judge if you have a better life or not. Now, take it—it it is music, television, but it—it it is you know, window of the Western world of popular culture. Then, you know, you could potentially start to make an argument that maybe your nation is behind in the Cold War. Your nation is not the one that looks to be succeeding overall, and that might even lead to more reforms or um, more complaints from the Russian people to say that their lives need to change. Okay. So please take a moment to answer the questions on uh, Gorbachev's uh, reform, specifically that of perestroika and the Soviet economy. And the first, there's three questions here. The first one says, explain the Soviet policy of perestroika. How was it intended to work? And the last one there says, how did the failure of perestroika affect Gorbachev? And we'll come back. All right guys, here we are again. Let's take a moment to look at the political cartoon that you should see there of Perestroika. It's the uh, one with the young lady showing off her new shoes to her grandmother. So let's take a moment to look at that and then we'll uh, kind of take you guys through the potential answers here. If I can locate it, where did it go? It was there a moment ago. All right, there it is. Okay, so here we have for Perestroika, just like we did with the Glasnost version. Um, We have a young lady here that's walking into a kitchen. She's showing off her Italian shoes and she says, see, grandma, capitalism. And you, I think you can probably change out capitalism with perestroika because remember perestroika did allow Russian people to open up their own business and make some money for themselves, which is capitalism. See, grandma, capitalism has given us so many choices. Look at my new Italian shoes. She does not look with a miniskirt and her Italian shoes, anything like the stereotype of the matrushka, big mama, Russian mother there. And the Russian mother, uh, or grandmother, I should say, says, yes, yes, but at least under Brezhnev, we didn't have to eat them. And she's saying, eat them, referring to the shoes. And if you notice, she's cooking a shoe in, uh, in the, the bowl. Now, there happens to be a, a big divide here. If we were in class, what I would have asked you to do is to draw a line between the youth and the elderly. One of the biggest things, one of the biggest changes that takes place because of perestroika is a generational divide. I think this is true of of any generation. I think it's true of even your your generation and my generation and our parents or grandparents' generation. Youth is always faster and easier to for, for change. You guys can adapt to something real quick, right? You guys have your newest apps on your phone, you know, overnight, you guys know how to work it. And you know, people like us are still on Facebook. Yeah. So, seeing that you guys are so quick to change, the youth in Russia, with the ability that they had in Perestroika to open up businesses, make money for themselves, make decisions for themselves, have a little taste of that economic freedom, a taste of capitalism, they loved it and they wanted quick change. They wanted fast change. That's not necessarily the case for a lot of older people, right? Older people are oftentimes set in their ways. I, I wouldn't say hard headed. But they become so used to something that change is foreign to them and change is scary. And so for, excuse me, a lot of the older generation of Russians who had lived, grown up on communism. And for many years, the communist state provided and provided. You worked, but they provided and provided. And now all of a sudden, you're being told as an older people that you need to go out and find a job or you need to find money and you need to wait in line to go buy, not that they're going to hand it to you, but you need to go buy that food, the older generation is going to say, this is, whoa, 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 whoa. life is, is too quick. Life is changing and progressing a little too fast. And that generational divide is going to wreak havoc for the older generation in the Soviet Union. And of course, between old and new, the older generation had much more of the right to vote. And they're going to use that right to vote against the guy who first started Perestroika, and that's going to be Gorbachev, right? And so, think about this is a three strikes policy. Um, actually, we'll, we'll we'll add something on with that. So, so we have Perestroika, which is the economic. We have Glasnost, which is the social. We need a political here, and this is this is the three strikes policy. One other um, reform that Gorbachev brought in was democratization or pluralism. Pluralism just means more than one, right? We looked at this term when we talked about the Reformation, having multiple jobs, pluralism. Well, pluralism here is meaning that you have the right as a Soviet voter to vote for more than one party. And up until the decree of of democratization, you only had the Soviet Party, political party that you could vote for. Yeah, you could vote for for, uh, Soviet Party official number one, Soviet Party official number two, or Soviet Party official number three. Now you could only vote for the communist party. You could vote for maybe a, who was the reformer B who wasn't the moderate and D who was the conservative or I don't know, one, two, three, whatever. C, who was a conservative, but you always voted for the communist party. It's not that you could vote for the libertarian, the green party, the Democrats. You, you could only vote for the communist party. Well, Gorbachev changed that and said that he was going to allow outside political parties. Now, three strikes, Gorbachev, three strikes that eventually will lead to the collapse of the Soviet Union. You provided freedom of speech to the Russian people where they could argue uh, when something goes wrong, they could argue against the state. You attempted to change the economy or slowly change the economy via perestroika and you messed up. So strike one, strike two. And because you messed up, people now use glasnost and openness against you and then strike three, you're allowing the Russian people the ability to not vote for your communist party. You're allowing them to vote for a, th- a second or a third party that would eventually remove your butt from office. Strike one, strike two, strike three, Gorbachev, you're out. It's exactly what is going to happen in the Russian state. The next guy who is building up a little bit of steam in the Soviet Union, his name is Boris Yeltsin. And he will become, Boris Yeltsin will become the first democratically elected leader of Russia once the communist state has collapsed. Uh, in the 1980s, he's slowly building up his, uh, his power. I believe he's like the mayor of Moscow. Um, around the same age, I think, as uh, Gorbachev. Um, so more youthful otherwise. Uh, but as Gorbachev continues to screw up with Perestroika and Klasnos, well... You know, if they're going to blame Gorbachev, that means other people potentially might step into that void and say, well, maybe I'm the best guy for the job. And so it becomes a Boris Yeltsin slowly increases his power while Gorbachev's uh, power decreases. Now, a couple of historical events take place around this time. Um, as it looks like the Soviet Union is weakening, there are calls by three states of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Uh, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, the three Baltic states, are going to start asking for self-determination and eventually independence. They wanted to break away from the Soviet state. Now, I'm not talking about Bulgaria, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Albania, not the Eastern Bloc, not those satellite states. These are states that make up part of the 15 or 16, like the United States of Russia, the Soviet Socialist Republics. They are a republic of the larger communist state. Gorbachev does not want these three states to become independent. And he is going to say and try to do everything possible to keep those uh, states in. But in 19, I think it's 1990 or 91, Lithuania, specifically Lithuania, is going to be the first that is going to declare itself an independent state. Um, Before they declare themselves an independent state, uh, the Russian government, the Soviet government attempts to go into uh, Lithuania take over the television studios and try to pump propaganda and try to stop a potential revolt. And when people show up at the television stations and radio stations to stop the Soviets, tanks come in and eventually uh, Soviet soldiers open fire and kill scores of people. I don't know if it's 12, 13, 14 individuals will lose their life. This now means that Gorbachev has blood on his hands. He has brought in the military and the military has killed Soviet Citizens, right? And even though they're Lithuanian and not Russian, they're still part. It would be like, you know, the uh, the U.S. government, you know, shot and killed people in Virginia. It's still part of the United States or Californians. It's still part of the United States, but it's the government killing a specific citizen of a uh, of a state, but still part of the larger Soviet Union. And this, of course, would mean that one more target placed on the back of Gorbachev, uh, and this will allow Yeltsin to increase in power. Beyond the Death toll that takes place at Lithuania in 1991, the summer of 1991. It looks like the Communist Party is on its way out uh, by August. Hardline Communists, afraid that they're going to lose, that their party is going to lose power, are going to take uh, matters into their own hands and they are going to complete what is known as the August 1991 coup. Coup is a military overthrow of a state or a junta is a blow to the state. Coup uh, d'etat, if you guys remember the French term. Uh, these hardliners are going to place Gorbachev under house arrest. He was with his family um, somewhere on vacation. I can't remember exactly where. Um, and they are going to send tanks into Moscow to stop the government, take over the government, stop it from uh, collapsing. And that day or during the day, uh, citizens are going to start walking out into their uh, their streets, realizing that there are tanks, their own you know, soldiers are taking over their capital city. And some tank commanders are going to turn around, and not going to follow orders. But uh, during the day Yeltsin decides that he is going to raise the stakes and he is going to enter into what is known as the white house in Moscow. It's not like where the president would live here in the United States, the white house. It's a government building known as the white house. And he is going to defy the hardline communists. And this definitely, you know, kind of builds up his stock in the Russian people to say that he is defying this, uh, this, um, coup and that he is going to fight for the Russian people and make sure that Russia does not go back into the old ways of communism. When the tanks do converge on the White House to arrest the uh, the anti-coup members, uh, Russian citizens have built up huge amounts of barricades to stop the tanks from getting in and arresting uh, Yeltsin. And uh, they also, uh, I think Russian citizens also kind of held hand in hand and made human chains and as the tank started moving amongst the Russian people, three young men lost their lives. And when the hardline communists, these hardline uh, communist uh, supporters, realized that the coup cost the lives of, of citizens, Russian citizens, they called an end to the coup and released Gorbachev from house arrest. And eventually Gorbachev flew back to Moscow and the coup was over. It was an unsuccessful coup. But coming out of that, the two men, Gorbachev and Yeltsin, Yeltsin is the winner really here. Uh, his stock increases He becomes the head of the Russian state, uh, the Soviet state, um, but Gorbachev still remains as the head of the Communist Party. So you got these two guys who are in leadership positions, but it's really Yeltsin who's pulling the strings, and Gorbachev is the head of the old and dying Communist Party. Uh, And eventually in 1991, Yeltsin uh, signs an agreement with some of the larger uh, of the uh, Russian states like like Ukraine and Belarus to dissolve the Soviet Union that it will no longer be the Soviet Union, that it will be Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, and some other states, and they will be under an economic tie, a commonwealth uh, of states. Commonwealth just means that they have economic ties and they trade with one another. Uh, But there would be no more of a Soviet state. Uh, Gorbachev has told this. He actually does not find out until he finds out from the Americans. Apparently, the Americans told him, hey, we hear that there's no more of a communist state, and uh, he had lost power completely. Uh, and at that point, once the paperwork is signed, it is over. There is no more Soviet Union. And one of the great things about this is that not that there's no more Soviet Union, not that there's no more uh, what I'm one of the great things about the end of the Cold War is that there was no nuclear war. All right. There was no end result that for many years, pundits and analysts in both states were threatening that there's going to be eventually a nuclear genocide. The Soviet Union and the United States are going to come to a head, and eventually somebody's going to push the button, and it's going to lead to joint nuclear destruction and annihilation. Um, 1991, I remember this clearly. 1991, my mom and I were driving um, over Hacienda Boulevard. If you guys know where Hacienda Boulevard is, um, it is on the mountainous area where La Habra Heights is. You kind of go up, and it takes you to Covina, we were coming down there. My mom had gone for a, a job uh, to pick up some stuff from some uh, for our, our business that my dad had. And we were coming down. It was December of 91. And I believe it's Christmas Eve is the last time the Soviet flag is removed. And the next day, the new Russian flag or the old Russian flag is brought back up. Uh, my mom had just got to the summit and was coming down towards La Habra Heights area towards La Habra. And my mom started crying because on the news, they were reporting that the Soviet Union no longer existed. And that in theory that the United States had defeated the Soviet Union and that the uh, United States was the winner of the cold war. Um, My mom started crying and I I remember seeing my mom and said, mom, are you okay? And she, in, in not so many words said, you have to understand John, that since I have been in this country. So she came here when she was seven years old from Italy that she has lived under the cloud of nuclear war, that she came here, she had firsthand accounts of or lived during the Cuban Missile Crisis and was afraid for her life. She went to school, got married, had children, all with this cloud of potential nuclear war. That when she had children, she had to think to herself, what type of world am I bringing my children into? Am I going to want them to live in a world where they're going to be under threat of nuclear war. And I think this is true of, of many people in many generations, right? People um, look f- looking into the future say, what type of world are we going to have in 20 years? Do I want my children to live in that type of world? Uh, coming out of 9-11, do I want my children living in a world of, where terror might dictate what they do or don't do? Or where global warming might dictate what they do or what they can or cannot do? Or uh, you know, in this case, COVID uh, or a disease might uh, show them that there is a death all around. What type of life are they going to live? Can or should I bring my child into? And my mom was kind of sharing that at that moment that she had lived under this cloud, and that eventually the the cloud is lifted, and there was this anxiety that was no longer compressing upon her, that it had been gone, had been lifted, and that you know she potentially and us, uh, you know, her children could survive, and that we didn't have to worry about potential nuclear. Holocaust. And I think um, uh, one of the leaders of Georgia, I um, can't remember his name, said it best that for, for those of us that lived during the Cold War, that you, you felt that you were being choked by what ifs. Constantly living your life under this idea of can I or should I with this cloud of potential destruction upon you. But the moment that cloud is lifted, you breathe easier. You breathe clearer and uh, easier, knowing that you are free, free to make movements and determine your own existence. There's a existence that there's not some cloud of nuclear genocide upon the horizon waiting for you. Uh, that was always uh, something on a personal level. You know, dealing with my mom that I uh, that I always remember, and then even hearing from um, one of the old Soviet. Uh, can't remember what exactly his name was. Oh, very uh, very large name, is in Georgian. Anyways. Okay, let's uh, let's move on. So uh, you have let's see. You finished your guys's questions. Please make sure that you uh, complete the questions for the um, the image that you have there of the young lady walking in. Um, I would say that as you're you're scrolling down, please note that it says for question two and question three the question why. Please make sure you answer that. Don't just write who was negatively affected and who was positively affected. Uh, indicate why they were affected one way or the other. Okay, moving on. Um, by 1991, the communist system is dead. The Soviet Union has ended. If there is a winner in the war, it's us. If there's a loser, it's the Soviet Union. But I guess looking at it once again, kind of through the eyes of my mom uh, and the uh, the leader of Georgia, um, everyone's really a winner here. And the big winner is everyone because there is no nuclear war, right? We actually survived from 1945 to 1991 without actually dropping atomic bombs. It got It got hairy. It got close a couple of times, specifically in the Cuban Missile Crisis. But luckily, even though there were wars in Vietnam and in Korea and in Afghanistan and in Central America and in Africa where all these little containment battles were being fought, luckily, luckily, none of them became the larger uh, nuclear war that uh, some people believed was going to take place. All right, we're going to jump kind of back in history a little bit. Because we just finished in 1991, we're going to go back to the major year that communism died in Eastern Europe, and that is going to be in 1989. Uh, With Gorbachev coming into power in 1985, uh, Gorbachev is trying to cut corners, specifically economically, and he realizes that a lot of money is being wasted in Eastern Europe. And that if he is, in a way, allowed to relinquish Eastern Europe, have Eastern Europe determine its own future... That would be less money spent by the Russian government in Eastern Europe, and we can kind of sew up uh, or you know take that money back. Not to forget that also the Soviet Union in 1979 started a war in Afghanistan, and that war has lasted or lasted all the way up until 1989, so that that's an 11-year war that costs a lot of money as well. So Gorbachev is trying to figure out ways of reducing the amount of money that uh, is being wasted. And one of those comes in Eastern Europe. So if you guys can locate where it says the fall of communism in Eastern Europe, AP 2020, this would have been a gallery walk we would have done in class. It has a section on Poland, on Hungary, on East-West Germany, on Czechoslovakia, on Romania, and then the last one is going to be on Yugoslavia. You have reading questions that go along with them. All right, the fall of communism in Eastern Europe. Uh, on each of those you have, I think it's two two to three questions per uh, nation. So please take a moment to read through those readings on how each of these countries eventually pull themselves out of the communist system and how some of them have to battle their way out of the communist system. And then by 1989, communism in Eastern Europe is dead. And this also allows a lot of the Russian people who started with Perestroika and Glasnost in 1985 And then look across the border into Eastern Europe and say, wait a second, wait, Eastern Europe is allowed to be free. The Czechs can choose capitalism. The Poles can do now whatever they want. We're not just, we're here in the Soviet Union, we're reforming, but they're completely revolutionizing their lives. That will also lead to to more Soviet individuals, Russians and Ukrainians and Belarusians. To look at their own lives and look across the way, even in Eastern Europe and saying, wait, why do we only get reforms and they get complete independence? Maybe we need to change as well. So please take a moment to read through those and answer your questions. And then we'll take a moment to kind of go through some of them, not all of them, but some of them to see what you guys have. All right, let's take a moment to look through some of these uh, events that take place from Poland, Hungary, all the way down to Yugoslavia. When Gorbachev starts to talk to the Eastern Bloc states about the potential of there being a question proposed if nations like Hungary or Poland want to stay under the Soviet, under Soviet control, or if those nations want to, through self-determination, choose their own freedom, choose their own ability, you know, if they want to stay under communism or, or choose a different course. Many of these nations are kind of skeptical at the beginning. And they have a right to be skeptical because if we remember back to 56 and 68, in 1956 in Hungary, right, those Hungarian students were crushed. The rebellion was crushed. And eventually some of those kids were executed when they turned 18. So there is a strong history of distrust between the Hungarians directing towards the Russian state, the Soviet state. And in Czechoslovakia in 1968, that's all they wanted to do was create communism with a human face. And their slow or uh, minuscule change or reform to modernize communism to bring it up to speed with democracy and civil liberties was crushed as well. So a lot of these eastern states, even Poland, look at the Soviet Union and say, I don't know, we don't trust you. How can you tell us that we're free to choose what we want in our state when in the, ba- in the past you have a history of crushing revolts? Well, Gorbachev reassures that in the end, if the states make the determination if they want to move forward as a communist state or choose something else that they can and that they should not uh, be afraid to, then nations are going to start to. Eventually Hungary, for example, they were the first ones to, one of the first ones to end communism. Um, The communist party simply said, we don't exist anymore. And they bowed out. Uh, In Poland, it was an election that uh, Solidarity eventually won the parliamentary vote at first it was one of those things like a slow way out for the communist party, but eventually they got voted out. Uh, Solidarity became a new movement that was illegal um, in the 1980s or late seventies, early eighties, and eventually gathered up speed in the 1989 Uh, and in 1990 they won a huge amount of the Polish parliament seats. Um, You guys know what the answer is. Hopefully you guys can find that. Uh, East and West Germany. um, It seemed that um, East Germany was in a period of vicious stagnation and unemployment, uh, not poverty, but um, uh, pollution as well. And so East Germans um, fought for, protested for their right uh, to declare themselves uh, an independent state and eventually reunified with West Germany. Uh, even though Russians were scared of potential of there being a, se- a third world war, having Germany reunify and then start another war, because here we are in the in the 1980s, and there's still a good amount of World War II people and you know, a generation that had still were still alive and were afraid of another world war coming Germ- uh, uh, from Germany in, towards Russia. You know, it would make sense that they were afraid. But uh, West Germany and East Germany are eventually allowed to, uh, to unify. And I believe in 1991, they will become the current state of Germany. They'll have some problems, uh, Germany with their unemployment and their pollution. Uh, West Germany is going to accept like some outrageous high tax rate for West Germans in order to help people in East Germany. Um, and so that was one of the, the kind of the payoff, you know, like, Hey, if you guys want a unified state, if you want your East German brothers back into West Germany, that's fine. But you know, East Germany is in shambles and we need to help them out. Now, uh, Czechoslovakia was an interesting one. Um, the protests that usually happened in Czechoslovakia kind of increased in size. And eventually, uh, what was the symbolic gesture that the Czechs took out of their pockets and started jiggling? It was the keys, right? It was the keys. And that was a symbolic way of saying your time is up, it's time for you to leave, it's time to go home. And they're specifically juggling at at the Communist Party building. You know, we're talking about upwards of what five hundred thousand people with their keys jiggling it uh, in you know the open squares of Prague, telling the communists that their time is up. And eventually, the communist party does dissolve, and Czechoslovakia becomes an independent state. And eventually, the Czechs and Slovaks will separate. What became known as the um, uh, the Velvet Revolution. Um, there was no blood loss. It was a easy, much like velvet is, you know, very soft and easy transition. The Czechs will have their own state, which is known as the Czech Republic today, and Slovakia will have their own state. Usually when you talk about states dividing, there's a lot of ethnic tension and clashes that take place. In this this case, for the most part, it was a pretty easy divide. Um, Czechs wanted their own uh, nation, Slovaks wanted their own nation under their cultural heritage. Uh, One of the nations that had a difficult time in their transition away from communism was Romania. Romania was controlled by Nikolai and Elena Ceaușescu, our uh, old uh, neighbors when we used to live in Whittier, uh, their, their last name was uh, uh, P- 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 Popa.. Yeah, Andy Popa was his name. Um, they used to live next to us. His parents were they were, they were Romanian, all, his whole family brothers, two brothers, he his brother, and his parents were Romanian and they moved in the house next to us. Um, under Nikolai and Elena Shashescu's uh, regime, Man, the, the Romanians—it was almost like mini Stalin-type of times in Romania. Um, eventually, at uh, Timisoara, there was a uh, an attack. The government attacked protesters and killed scores of protesters. And after that, it, Nikolai and Elena Chiricescu's time was was slowly ticking away. They will both be arrested. Um, they will both be tried for crimes against humanity, right? Not necessarily crimes against humanity like genocide, but that's what they were found guilty of crimes against humanity, genocide for the killing of their own people. And they will be shot and killed on Christmas Day. I mean, usually the Christmas Day, right? For those of you that celebrate it, Christmas Day, you're going to, you know, see the Christmas tree. You're going to oh, go, I get to open my Christmas presents. But in Romania, their gift was to see. Their old leader and his wife get shot and killed you know, on national television. Now, on live television, they actually uh, they they doctored the video, but they did show the bodies afterwards. And it was important to show the bodies because in in one case, Nicolae and Elena Ceausescu meant so much terror for the Romanian people that it's almost like Elvis Presley today, or uh, was it Tupac, right? Tupac's still alive or Elvis Presley's still alive yeah you know he's, in, he's living in Vegas you know, he's like in some back alley in Vegas somewhere. Um, why do those stories exist that these people are are still alive? You didn't see a body they're just so so important uh, that there's no way that they can die. Um, but when you have somebody who like Nikolai um, Shashescu that killed his own people and created such a terror, you need to see the body. It's one of those things that the Romanian people needed to see. I think it's even true of I- Iraqis. When uh, Saddam Hussein was executed, there was not supposed to be a video of his execution. But somebody went in there with a little cell phone in their pocket, and they had the video camera on, and they videotaped him dropping from the uh, from his hanging rope. They didn't. I don't think they have video footage of him hanging, but they have video footage of the prep and eventually his dropping. Because the Iraqi people need to know, much like the Romanians needed to know, that their leader, this boogeyman, was not going to come back to life. If you can see the body, once again, you can can breathe freely knowing that he and his wife are no longer uh, in control and no longer can come back to haunt you. Uh, Yugoslavia, the greater Yugoslav state, uh, was jumbled together by a diversity of different ethnic groups, uh, Croats, Slovenians, Slovakians, uh, Bosnians, Herzegovinians, Montenegrins, or Bulgarians. You guys know this back from the Austrian-Hungarian Empire times. Uh, and when it became a communist state under Josip Tito, Tito was the guy who kind of was the glue that kept all of these different ethnic groups at bay from destroying one another. And then in the 1980s, when Yosef Tito died, it slowly, the Yugoslavia slowly started to dissolve. And eventually, you have uh, Bosnian Muslims, uh, the Serbian military in the late 80s, early 90s are going to attempt, 92, I think, 92, 93, are going to attempt to ethnically cleanse some of the areas of Serbia, ethnically cleanse, meaning they're either going to kill or push out um, the Bosnian Muslim populations, although Today, if you live in Serbia, and you live in the Bosnian areas, you have a lot of areas that have a mixture of Serbians and Bosnians who are still kind of questioning who, who did the military deed, uh, because some Serbians were also killed. And so that led Serbians to say, no, it wasn't our government, or it wasn't our military, because our people were killed as well, even Bosnians, you know, were pushed. So there are people who even live in Serbia today and in the Bosnian areas that still question whether or not it was their government or not that completed it. But huge amounts of populations were killed or were moved off of the land. And when imagery of there being detention facilities and concentration camps uh, being set up in these areas of the former Yugoslavia in Serbia shot were, were shown on national television or global television, Man, those, that imagery automatically took people back to the Holocaust and concentration camps. And then I believe NATO got involved and eventually stopped the Serbian military, arrested uh, Slobodan Milosevic, and found him guilty. Um, and I think he died in prison. I don't think, I don't know if he was executed. I think he died in prison, however. So um, once again, by the time 1989 comes around, and sometimes a little bit deeper into 1991, 92, 93, communism is completely dead in Eastern Europe. And that ends communism in the East. And with that, that ends the lesson. All right, you guys do have three parts that you need to submit. Um, Let's go over those parts again. So, you have the questions from Gorbachev's reforms, Perestroika, and Glasnost. There was, uh, I think it was four questions on Glasnost and three questions on Perestroika. That's 50 points. You want to make sure you submit that. The cartoons that you guys completed, that's 50 points. Make sure you submit. And then the last part that we kind of generally went over, the fall of communism in Eastern Europe, is also 50 points. So once again, just like you've seen, all of these three last lessons are 150 points each. There is a quiz. It should be finished, hopefully, by 7 o'clock tonight, and you should find it. Remember that today is the last day for teachers to submit any new work. After you complete this lesson, we are simply on for, for AP Euro, We are on makeup work. If you have a late assignment or a late online assignment or a late quiz, please, please, please get that done. Don't forget, you need to snap pictures of your um, World War II packet and email them to me. That was the one packet that I did not have an opportunity to get a hold of. That's your last packet that you guys have physically. If you're going through it and you realize that there's a lot of parts that are missing, please complete them, snap a picture, and send them my way. This way, could have that on your uh, your grade. All right, um, for those of you that might have missed some of your old DBQs, one through five, please make sure you do complete those. Those are 100 points each, um, and then of course the quizzes and the lessons. All right, um, I want to say, guys, for both the first period and uh, fourth period, that you guys have been amazing, amazing, amazing. Um, your your toughness uh in in periods like this with this whole covid thing that's going on uh your resilience your ability to wake up every morning and continue to work on your work and do what you guys do is an inspiration to uh, to teachers like myself and my colleagues um even before that thank you guys for being great classes um i tell you man last year last year was a tough year on a personal level for me and um I am so happy to have had an opportunity to teach students who remind me about what being a teacher is supposed to feel like. You guys have been just a class act from the beginning of the year, and uh, I thank you so much. And when this is, when it is that this is all over, and I do have an opportunity to, uh, to see you guys, you know, I want to make sure that I, I do shake your hands and have an opportunity to thank you for such a, uh, a great school year. Unfortunately it is that we had to end it early like this and we had to do this online learning stuff. But, uh, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much for being such a great group of, uh, of kids. I've dearly appreciated this year. All right. If you guys have any questions, please, please let me know, shoot me an email, shoot me a remind something. Uh, I know some of you guys have been getting back to me about some missing assignments that, um, that maybe I, I, I didn't see or didn't note or, you know, sometimes what I'm doing with your quizzes is that I'm putting the quiz on your grade program on Aries, but I forget to put the score on um, on uh, Google Classroom. If that's the case, Aries is the most important one. If it's on Aries, it's good. If I forget to move it over to Aries, please email me. But if there's something I'm missing, maybe you turn in an assignment um, and I never graded it or it's still floating out there in uh, Google Classroom world, please let me know and I'll get uh, on that as soon as possible. All right, guys. Hope to hear from each one of you soon. Bye.